The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher on Lead Lag Live here on Spaces with special guests Herb Greenberg. Um, so Herb, you know, I appreciate obviously the uh, the time here. A lot of people have seen you <clears throat> on financial media for a number of years. Um, I want to make this conversation less about markets and more about the business side of investing because I think this is something that doesn't get, really get a lot of uh, coverage, and I think we approach it from two different perspectives. But for those who are not familiar with your background, just level the playing field. Who are you, and what have you done in your career? So um, I was a journalist uh, for uh, about 40 years or so. And, um, and, and then over the course of, I don't know, the nearly 50 years of my career, I have um, uh, also had uh, sort of co-founded two short bias research firms. Um, very early on, I tried my hand at uh, an arbitrage firm for just before the market crashed in 1987. Uh, I have was a columnist for 10 years, business columnist for 10 years at the San Francisco Chronicle. I was one of the first mainstream journalists to jump to online journalism, as they called it, back in 1998 when I joined Jim Cramer at thestreet.com. Uh, I have uh, been at the street, you know, I've been at a variety of newspapers from the Chicago Tribune, uh, including the Chicago Tribune, San Francisco Chronicle. And then I shifted over to um, online, to the street, to Market Watch. Uh, my, I had a column in Fortune magazine. My resume exhausts me to look at. Um, I enjoy trying new things. Uh, and now I am at Empire Financial Research, where I have shifted my entire career away from what I've done, which was mostly you know, trying to spot things where there was a problem in a company to uh, focusing uh, at what I suspect will be the tail end of my career uh, on, on things that might go right. So uh, that is it in a nutshell. I had um, Trish Regan and Adam Johnson, two former Bloomberg alumni, on as spaces on, uh, as guests on different spaces in the past. And I'd asked them each the question, uh, how has journalism changed when it comes to financial uh, media over the last several decades? And one of the things that they both said was that it's obviously become much more uh, emotional and narrative driven. I'm curious, given your decades of experience as a journalist covering all kinds of topics, do you think that's a fair characterization? Has journalism become more story driven, less about facts, more about narrative? What's sort of been the evolution 
of journalism in the financial space? Well, I think you have to distinguish between uh, reporting and commentary. And I think a lot of people sort of miss that point. There, you know, there is very strong, you know, objective journalism going on today in newspapers and news organizations where people go out and try to report the facts. I was in that world. I um, am um, offended by people who say that doesn't exist anymore because it does. I've had to sit there with lawyers jumping through hoops to try to avoid, you know, libeling someone uh, before something is published, uh, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, at CNBC or with various news organizations. And when I read the press and I read the news and I do read the news, uh, various types of news publications, uh, I see strong reporting. And then I see other things, which is which is commentary and which is clearly commentary. And even if it's a journalist, you know, on Twitter or, um, you know, someone who is, you know, you could argue it's called influence journalism. That's what some people call it, where, you know, people go out and, and, and publish not necessarily their opinions, but what they believe is um, uh, uh, their interpretation of, of the story. And, and let, let, me, let me tell you, I go back, going back to when I joined, this was 19... Gosh, I think it was 1980 when I joined Crane Chicago Business. And that was, there was a very interesting lesson that was learned there. And it goes this far back and it actually precedes that to where what we called it in those days. We were a weekly, so we had to compete with the dailies. But one thing they taught me when I went there uh, was what they referred to as forward spin journalism. And that was um, uh, something Business Week had really coined and done a very good job with, you know, prior to that. So there's always been a form of interpretive journalism going on where you needed to pull the reader through and you needed to have a bottom line. So that's not new. It's just expanded. And and I would argue that the expansion of that, you know, certainly dates to social media, but precedes social media to blogs, where, as I like to say, suddenly everybody, everybody became a journalist, thought of themselves as a journalist, didn't need a journalist, as uh, my sources could go direct. So they could skip me and just start writing their own blogs, as as many started to do. And you started to see the rise over the years of activist short-selling, things like that. So I think, you know, you also blur the line between what's a journalist and who's a journalist and who's a bona fide journalist. You know, I consider somebody a journalist who, you know, who works for you know, a news organization, um, uh, or f- certainly follows the principles of journalism. Uh, and that's why I consider myself a former journalist because I don't work for a news organization anymore, but I, I'm still steeped journalism. And I think the basics of journalism are still steeped in me when it comes to certain, you know, elements of saying, say, say you're working on something and an activist short seller might say it's a fraud and may know it's a fraud and can say it, and I'd have a hard time saying that because just based on on where I come from. But I do think that there's been there's more been a blurring of the lines. And part of that is because of people like you who are out there no different than people like me. We're all sort of in the same pool. And when I first came around to looking at social media and especially financial Twitter, which it wasn't called in 2008. But when I started when I first got on Twitter, but when I started looking at it, one of the things I had to embrace was that there were a lot of smart people out there who were not journalists. And they were the type of people I was talking to. But beyond the people that were my typical source network, 
as I started just watching various Twitter streams of people I'd never heard of, I realized, man, you know, a lot of smart people who are just as smart, if not smarter than the people I've been talking to over the years. And you got to pay attention. So I think it's just been, you know, this sort of democratization of, of information. And that's what makes it a little harder for people and makes it actually arguably more important to be able to do your own work or at least have a have some sort of a um, an idea of what you're dealing with. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. You had mentioned libel earlier, and it got me thinking a little bit because arguably, if you're a journalist, you want to make sure the truth obviously comes out, and that requires offending somebody, presumably, right? But if there's a fear of libel, it is hard to really properly do that, right? And I'm sure there are certain laws that protect against, yes, kind of blowback, but I am curious if if you think that in a trigger-happy lawsuit world, it's become harder for journalists to to walk that line when trying to report on what could be a fraud, but are afraid of some kind of legal lawsuit afterwards? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think it depends on the news organization. And I do believe, look, anybody can sue anything for anyone for anything. All right. That's a given. Anyone can rattle a saber and threaten to sue and hopefully push you off the story. And as good journalists know, that often is a sign that you're so close to the truth that you just keep moving ahead. Um, but I had not thought about this until in, in this way until the other day. And I had written something about, um, you know, just uh, my interpretation of the changes in journalism. Um, or I, I was on another podcast and I was talking about it. And, um, and I was talking just about what I had just said, that there's been just this wholesale change. And I added in the news organizations and how there's just fewer reporters and, you know, fewer, fewer dollars being spent on investigative journalism and you, you know, you have the bar is so high and it's someone going to click on the story and that type of stuff, which is real in the world of news. So a lot of stories and frauds therefore could fall through the cracks. And then Michelle Solarier, who's a friend and who writes for institutional investor, plus a bunch of other magazines, uh, chimed in and said, no, but there's more to it. And that more to it is that some news organizations will pull back just because they are afraid of the legal risk. And I hadn't really factored that in as another, you know, another element to the changes that we've seen, because I certainly and I've been an out there edgy type of a guy for many years. And my news organizations always had my back. And I was working when I was working at Dow Jones, uh, which was Market Watch. And I had a column in The Wall Street Journal at the same time on Saturdays. um, I always knew that the lawyers, we had a fantastic general counsel who would, who would let us go to the almost to the red line. And he was willing to back us up no matter what. And I remember when the company changed hands and was sold to, to, uh, to News Corp, 
there was a wholesale change in the legal department. And I remember as we started to deal with more, you know, risks, what I would say riskier stories where we used to have this general counsel who was really in our corner, it was, you felt a change. It was a little less willing to go to that line. Um, but you know, no matter where I've been, when I've written stories, I used to write for fortune once a month. I used to have to go through it with a lawyer. You know, we'd go through, even though I was writing, you know, 800 word column, it was, everything had to be vetted. And, uh, and, and so I, I think there's probably a little bit more of that fear factor, um, uh, that's going on today. And by the way, I should also point out, but I should also point out, and then you have something like ProPublica, which is totally not afraid of anybody or you see a story you know there was this there was an interesting story uh kate kelly wrote in the new york times yes yesterday the day before about jared kirshner and and the saudis and that was a gutsy really gutsy piece of investigative journalism so there's a lot of that going on let's make that very clear how about the um the sort of broader trend towards skepticism right i mean i don't want to go into old discussion around sort of fake news and and that that terminology but you know I, I used to write for Marco Watch too, from a, from a different perspective, and uh, I, I know from for a fact that if you want to get your article read, you've got to have something in the title that's a little clickbaity, right? Click as much as people critique clickbait type titles, the reality is it does work, and you have to get somebody to open up the damn thing, otherwise, what's the point of writing it, right? But that also engenders, I think, uh, engenders a certain sort of skepticism around news and if they're simply trying to get you to click on something versus if it's really something that's worth reading. How do you think uh, skepticism by the general public has worsened or what's really the cause of that? Is it because of this need to have clickbait type of titles and people just say, well, this is a nonsense thing to spend my time on? Uh, yeah, I, I, I know I'm kind of throwing different topics out here, but I'm trying to relate the idea of yeah, clickbait with sort of skepticism in, in the general public. I think I, I don't know about the general public. I know about me and I know it's maddening and I hate it. And I see things and I'll every now and then I sucker myself in and I get suckered in and I I'll click on like, ah, darn, there's nothing here. I think there's been, you know, people have certainly wised up to that. Um, I think that uh, it, it goes beyond that because it goes beyond even topics. You know, I, look, I, I don't know that the public that causes the skepticism. I think the skepticism is that we've become a much more polarized society on a variety of issues and events. Um, and more people are engaged in the system. And again, I go back to the quote unquote democratization or so-called democratization where everybody has a voice and everybody's opinion can be heard. And I know that, you know, there's one thing about, you know, you talk about the clickbait and I think most of us or many of us are wise to that. Um, uh, but I think you go beyond the clickbait and you go to, uh, you know, just trying to make sure the source, you know, if you're looking at social media, I know if I see something and I'm kind of dubious of the link, there are plenty of times I've thought, is this real? Is, is, who is this? And I'll start looking at where's it really coming from? And, you know, I'm more dubious if it's not coming from a source I know and trust, um, and and so I think you just have to have your guard up more. Uh, but again, that's part of free press and that's that's part of, uh, you know, the ability to access all sorts of information. It's the it's the downside of it to one extent, because, look, when in my when I was living in my world as a journalist before social media, it was, you know, it was a very different world. You know, we were we were we were it. You know, the journalists were the ones who were reporting the news. 
And today you report the news and now there are comments under your story telling you what an idiot you are, or there are people on social media, you know, you know, threatening your life or your family, um, or just slinging mud because that's what people do. Right. Which, which makes it even harder to get the truth out. Right. Because then, you know, everyone's a human being, right. Journalists obviously included. So, you know, if you end up having uh, comments like that, I've seen that many times in my own writings over the years where you get very aggressive comments where it's like, where does this even come from? And it makes you, it's discouraging. I mean, candidly, right. I think people underestimate how uh, things like that actually are probably very bad for the system longer term, right. In terms of truth coming out. Um, what you're asking is interesting because that's why I don't do it anymore. Not that we're not going to do it with Empire. We like we in theory like to do at least uh, four shorts a year that we publish just for the public, just in the public domain. Because the team I work with is all a bunch of people who have short DNA in them, even though they're doing long biased work. Um, I think operating on the short side is like is is the hardest is extraordinarily difficult work because you have to be as close to 100% right as possible. Um, and you, you're distinguishing between different types of shorts. There's fundamental shorts, and then there are more nefarious shorts where there's something underlying that you know really can become quite difficult. I know when I, I was, you may or may not remember or know, but for three months, uh, three sorry months when I left my short research firm. So I had the short bias research firm. And after a few years, the worst being post, you know, COVID, but the, the year before that, plus, um, you know, the, uh, the post COVID year, you know, I was just kind of, kind of had it because you're watching, you're doing good work. I worked with Don Vickery, who's a fantastic forensic accountant and Linda McDonough, who's a wonderful she she's she's just as great an analyst out there as there is any out there, both of whom have short DNA. And we would do really good work, but the stocks would go straight up. And that's hard to live with. And it sort of becomes demoralizing. And then you see your your we 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 provided research to hedge funds and you see your, you know, you, the analysts you're you're dealing with get fired or the funds close or people just say, Herb, we're not shorting stocks anymore. And that that was really personally at this stage of my life was just kind of hard for me. But I thought, hey, I'll go and the, the guys that are actually making a difference are the activist short sellers. And um, I thought I would go do that. But I did it for only three months because it turned out the stocks we were finding that were actually very interesting. And I was working with um, a great uh, um, analyst who was was helping me out, a guy named Mike Blanick, who's been a short selling analyst for a long time. He we would come in, we'd say, these are good at names. There's just one problem. They weren't a quote unquote activist name because the activist name takes it a step further. It takes it to the point where the analyst who's covering the company did not know that. Or as one activist said to me, the portfolio manager goes to the analyst and says, Hey, you know, you publish your report and the portfolio manager goes to the analyst and said, Hey, did we know this? And the analyst goes, no. And the portfolio manager hits sell because the risk is too high. Um, well, in my three months of doing it, I just realized I, you know, I liked what we were finding, but because we weren't finding the other types of names, um, I just didn't want to continue. And, 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 and Enrique Beta, who was at Empire, had come to me and prior to that and suggested I join them. So it had me rethink a lot of things in my life. But 
I think short selling always will be more difficult. And I find, you know, I was talking to a friend who was a short analyst before I started doing this. And I asked him and he was at a firm where he was shifted to become a long to the long side of the book because they weren't really doing much shorting anymore. And I said, what's the most difficult thing you found? He said, I found that I want to spend more time doing research than my portfolio manager wants me to spend on it because on the short side of the book, you just have to button it up that much more. Now, remember, I was never a short seller. I was, an, I, was a, I was a researcher. I was a journalist, then a researcher, then you know a quasi-analyst, if you want to call me that. But you just need to know more. You need to know every detail. I spent, here I am working on a long bias report, and we're working on this company the other day. And I, wa- I wanted to know, and we, re- we wrote this report on this one company that's in this one industry, and there was, there was one detail, one detail that I wanted to get the answer to, something that wouldn't have made a difference in whether this is a good long or not a good long. It was just something I wanted to know. I spent 45 minutes trying to get an answer to that question, and I could not get a direct answer to that question given the type of company it was and the type of industry it's in. But, you know, you spend that type of, I think you're wired to spend that kind of time to try to dig up every detail because, you know, sometimes they matter. And that gets to something else I've been thinking about lately. And that is the concept of every twist and turn and every detail of a story. As a guy who used to write, you know, six columns a week back in the day and then five columns a week, often with short bias stuff in it, you know, people would come to me and share information and I, I had to go out and see if it was real. And it was usually stuff in documents. You know, analysts find something in a document and they get all excited about it. And I, as a guy writing a column, I'm looking for nuggets of things to write. So I'd write, you know, I'd find something and I'd look and I'd say, hey, this is really interesting. It's a change in some accounting. It's something that, you know, was no longer being disclosed or a new disclosure or something. But over the years, I've come to realize a lot of those twists and turns don't matter. But the short selling analyst needs to know everything. Because you don't want to be bamboozled. But now that I'm on the long side of the of the of, of the of the book, or I'm trying to spend my time doing that, I have the same fears. I have the same fear of being bamboozled. In fact, I think I have a fear more today on the long side of the of the book of being bamboozled than I did when I was writing short bias work. Because now you really have to, you know, you you have to be doubly dubious of management, doubly dubious of their intentions. You know, doubly dubious of are the numbers going to be correct, or is there something there that's really going to going to going to embarrass the hell out of you? And um, you know, you know that's going to happen. It's just the nature of the business. But uh, because the smartest people get fooled by you know all the time at times um, on the long and short side. Uh, but I think it's all a long winded way of just saying that um, I think it's I think it's it is harder. I think it requires more work. And it requires more work because you're going against the herd. And anytime you tilt against the herd, you know, that's just, that's just more difficult. No, I, I, think, the, I think it's made it more difficult uh, on all sides because I don't think it makes it more difficult having – it makes it harder to get the information. But you still can create a, a mosaic and create a theory of, of why you're involved in something. Remember – you know, the numbers, the numbers can be the telltale sign. You know, I like to look, one of the things I like to do, it's just a, a thing I like to do. It's not necessarily a meaningful uh, element. You know, I like to go to a proxy statement and just see how someone's bonus, because sometimes that can show you a, mo- a motive, why somebody may be, may be more aggressive. But in the end, you know, the numbers can provide a clue, certainly provide a good clue of 
why a company is screwing up. And then it's up to you to support that and to try to get enough evidence to build upon that to show that this is a false negative or a false positive or, 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 you know, that it's real or not real. And um, so I don't think, I think Reg FD made it more difficult for everybody because it created it, it in a sense, in a sense, not totally, it removed an inefficiency that existed in the market. And that made it more difficult for people to get a leg up on the competition, meaning other investors, on knowing information they didn't know. And let me give you an example of that. You know, back when I was, I have the, 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 the perspective of having been doing this since pre-internet. And pre-internet, you know, if you think about it, when I was in San Francisco writing my column, my column had some market-moving things in it, except nobody saw it except people in San Francisco. So remember, in those days, there were there was growth stocks were really hot. Remember, this is going into the bubble of nineteen, the late nineteen nineties. But even you know, in the mid nineteen nineties, when the internet was just coming out, some people weren't really connected. And there would be people like Jim Cramer used to say he would get my column faxed to him in New York, so he could see what I was writing, so he could get a leg up on the competition. And other people did the same thing. So you had this great inefficiency that was at work. And I think that's made it harder for everybody because, you know, even doing short research, when you're a third party firm today, as we were, as I, I was before I left um, uh, the research, my research firm, Pacific Square Research, um, the, you, you're, the compliance rules are so tight today that even people like us were bound by the rules where they said, you know, post 2008, we don't want you talking to experts. We don't want you talking to consultants. We don't want you talking to this. We don't want you talking to that. So you're sort of doing the work with one hand tied behind your back, and you're sort of you know giving it to your subscribers at a certain level. But I think so. I think it's just the opposite. I think it's become uh, it's become a little more difficult to get an edge, uh, but but not necessarily totally difficult. If that answers your question, uh, there's something that's interesting here. So so you went from the journalist you know side to the short side to the long side. I named the space perfectly switching sides. And in that transition, I'm reminded of an interview I heard from David Rosenberg long, long time ago, where it was post-financial crisis, post-08, and he was being interviewed and he was turning quite bullish. And I remember in the interview, he said to the uh, other person on their side that he was shocked by the number of people that uh, threw a lot of vitriol at him because he went from being very bearish on the economy and on markets to suddenly very bullish, and they were still very bearish, right? That, and he said that it, it dawned on him that a lot of the people that have followed him were following him because they he confirmed their own biases, their own thinking, their own macro thoughts, right? And they left the moment that uh, he ended up being bullish, and even though he was right, it doesn't matter. He lost those subscribers. He lost that, that viewership. One of the things that's interesting about building a name is that if you build a name with a certain mindset and then you switch to mm-hmm. a different part of the industry is now you lose some of that audience. Mm-hmm. I am curious, Herb, how you kind of manage that transition because some people would say, well, you kind of gave in then to the long side, even if it was right, right? Oh, Those not- that knew you as being more bearish, that's that's a consideration, I think. That's, that's, <laughs> um, that is, uh, is great, a great point. And it is, uh, <laughs> it, it it is something because I had an identity and I, I liken it to people know me as a certain type of a person. 
And by the way, my timing on making this, as I tell my friends, was so exquisite. I mean, could anyone have picked a good, good time, good time shifting from the short side to the long side better than me, actually, or worse than me, or however you want to look at it, depending if you want the sarcasm or the non-sarcastic sarcastic answer. Here's the deal. Um, everyone sees you as something because you're a brand. And I looked at it and I thought about it. I thought this is like being an actor or an actress or someone who says, you know what? You know them to be a comedian, but now they become a dramatic actor or they're a dramatic actor, but you didn't know they were really a singer or a singer who wanted to be a comedian or whatever the case may be. People, when you're, when you're doing something that where there's a public audience, people see you and want to put you in that little corner. And as I turned 70 years old, I thought, you know, I don't really care. I have one life to live. And that life is to do whatever the hell it is I want to do. And when I made this decision, I really anguished over it. And I would talk, I would say, gee, what are people going to think? I'm going to go and start doing long bias. And my, and, and my wife and my family would look at me and go, who are people? And I go, my, I've been these readers for all of these years. They go, who cares? And I think, well, I care because I have a reputation to, to the, the, this is who I have sort of created. My, and then I started thinking about it. And I really started thinking through the concept of, well, hold on a second. You know, I, through the process of doing the short research, and I'm a pretty optimistic guy. Anyone who knows me, I may be risk averse, but I'm a pretty optimistic guy. And I, um, uh, I genuinely, I like people. I hate constantly hammering people. It was always hard for me. If you ever know, if you, anyone who's followed my career has known, I rarely would I make anything personal because people have families. There's a lot going on there. It's just not the way I'm wired to go after an individual. I go after the institutions, you know, companies, that type of thing. Um, but I think that when I started looking at it, one thing I realized is over all these years, I'd marvel at the companies that did well, or I'd look back at the companies where I made, where I just got it wrong, where the shorts got it wrong. And I'd say, how did, and I'd study, how did they get it wrong? What was wrong here? What was the mistake? What was missed? You know, how did I, how did I end up doing this? Or why did I write whatever story? And in the process, I grew and I always had a great appreciation for businesses that execute well. I always have. And it's just that I haven't really genuinely written about it because that hasn't been my corner of the world my corner of the world, I've stayed very tight to. So for me, making the switch was, was something that, it, you know, I had to decide, you know, my work is my work. My content is my content. And doing what I'm doing now, I still write two free, as we call them, essays a week that go out of my LinkedIn feed and the Empire Financial Research feed, which have quite a bit of, you know, the skeptical me in it because I'm still a skeptic. But yet, you can be a skeptic and still you know, try to find interesting companies that people haven't been paying attention to. It's the journalist in me. I like to go back. And if you look at our current portfolio of eight names, most of them are names most people have not looked at, have not paid attention to. Are um, they're, Yet they're good businesses. They've got great cash flow. Some are paying dividends. You know, some are doing this, some are doing that. And they've just sort of like fallen off the earth. There's one company that we just wrote about that there's one guy on the call right now who's listening and he knows exactly which one I'm talking about, which is this huge company, came public, 
stock absolutely it didn't just it fell through the floor the ultimate broken ipo even before it came public and the problem is is the street totally doesn't know the full story because they have it all pigeonholed into what it once was i have another company whenever i tell people hey you know about xyz company and people go, oh yeah they do they do x people th- i think you guys have totally missed the boat this company has done a total transformation while nobody was watching because during the bull market, all sorts of you know people were playing on the highest, the fastest growing, the, the sexiest names, the fastest growing stocks, the highest price to sales ratios. But there's a whole bunch of other companies out there that are real businesses that no one's paying attention to. To me, that seems like an opportunity. So that's that got me very excited. And, and that got me excited to make the switch. And when I came to the reality that it really didn't care what anyone else thought. You know, either people are going to like what I write or they're not going to like what I write. And and so here I am. And hopefully, hopefully it's a it's a it's a big part of what I'm doing uh, for the duration, because it's it's all a puzzle. Remember, it's it's it keeps my mind going at this stage of life. And it's kind of fun when you get in. It'll always be fun when you're in the middle of trying to pull something apart. The acting analogy, because I think it's no different in the sense that you're kind of typecasted uh, at, at a certain point, right? And whether it's you're an actor or, or you're in the financial field. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Uh, well, first of all, I think you have to be careful with that comment because a journalist who covers the oil or energy industry is covering the oil or energy industry. That is a journalist for a news organization who's doing that. No matter what their bias is, they're covering those companies. They're covering those industries. They have editors, and that's how it's done. And if they're covering um, environmental or they're on an ESG beat, that's what they're doing. Everybody has biases, by the way, everybody, no matter if they're conservative or liberal. But I think um, I, I know people, you know, I mean, you, you again, covering, covering, you know, you're, you're making an assumption. and I think you're making an assumption by uh, based on reading opinion writers rather than reading jur- or non or interpretive journalism. It's labels as such an analysis as opposed to reading true, true. coverage. So I think you have to be very careful with that. And that's what just drives me nuts when people start talking about the press. They, again, are confusing reporting with analysis, and which is labeled as analysis or opinion, and then broad, more broadly what's going on in social media, which has nothing to do with, in my world or my old world, uh, true media. So I think you have to be careful with that. I think, you know, you get me going on ESG, that's a totally different topic, which is, uh, you know, I have opinions about, but I think that, um, so that's, that's what I think you have to, the way you have to look at it, you have to think about it. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and then, you know, judge it on your own based on the analysis and the reporters reporting on the situation. Well, since you're Mr. Quant, <laughs> you're the, you're the great quant analyst. 
Clearly, um, you remember Eric, if that's the case. Exactly. Yes. So, yes. No, no, no. We had great conversations. So, um, I, I think that uh, I've never had to deal with that. I mean, we basically, it's like compliance anywhere. Your, your data is your data. And, uh, you know, I don't know that, you know, you know, I don't, I, I haven't had to deal with that just so to speak. I mean, I'm limited by the resources we have and the access to data that we have and any of its bona fide data. Um, you know, so that's, uh, you know, I think you still, I don't think anybody want, I don't know any of the people I work with all who have really serious backgrounds want to deal with stuff that they can't quantify and uh, somehow quantify and aren't using data that is somewhat, you know, that they believe to be legitimate. Um, but we tend to be, you know, we take a different approach because our reports, Eric, are not written like the reports I would write for for Pacific Square or that you would see typically written in um, for Wall Street. These are written for a different audience entirely. We're very interested in a good idea and we tend to tell it more in a story mode with a narrative where the numbers, we know what the numbers are, but they're playing a lesser role to the story we're telling. We just need to know and feel where we have something that we feel very good about. So um, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but my current world is working, is, is presenting the story very differently. And again, to a very different market um, uh, than it, much more like when I, when I was a newspaper reporter writing for a, uh, a broader public audience. Because you're asking a question about what kind of data we use, and I can't, I can't speak to the data my colleagues use. I, I mean, I use data. If I use data, you know, uh, I'm close to some guys that you probably know. Uh, you and I should have an offline call who have great data uh, on certain things. But I'm, not, I'm not going out there, and I'm not, of course, I'm not covering retail, so I'm not going out out there and using that data, and I don't have access to some of that data. Um, but we should take this offline. You and I should catch up. How's that? Space is bringing people together. That's what, that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. All right. So, so uh, I, I, I glanced through some of your LinkedIn posts, Urban, and you, there's a, a line you put in one of your posts where you talked about marketing, how and how it's not your kind of core skill set. It kind of makes you uncomfortable. And I've always had people that will come at me and critique and say, oh, you're just marketing. You're just a salesperson. And my response is, well, well everyone has to sell. I don't care if you're an accountant. I don't care if you're a doctor. Everyone's got to promote themselves. If you don't do it, who's going to do it for you? Now, when you're dealing with uh, selling in most industries, you can point to the obvious benefits of what it is that you're selling, right? Here's this great microwave. Here's this whatever it would be, right? You can point to actual features and benefits. The problem in the investment industry is that you can't necessarily link the product to some known outcome because there's always a degree of randomness when it comes to the future. So I am curious, Herb, from all of your experience selling also, I would argue, as a journalist, right, about yourself, your brand, and, and your way of thinking to selling from a research perspective, what's been the, uh, the, the hardest hurdle to overcome when it comes to trying to get somebody to pay attention to your way of looking at the world? You've been bugging my phone. Um, I think uh, <laughs> as a journalist, as a journalist, it's, I'm selling myself. I'm selling myself to get myself to get somebody to talk to me. And I can do that because I believe in myself and I believe in what I'm trying, the information I'm trying to get. 
And um, that was that was an easy sale. But you're right. You're selling yourself. You're always selling. Everybody's always selling. As one uh, hedge fund manager told me the other day uh, when we were talking about some of this, uh, I once had a conversation. About one, now, well, before I had that conversation, when I had the research business, I was not I had trouble selling and I didn't like picking up the phone. That's why we had sales guys. I hated picking up the phone and trying to just do an outbound cold call. That is not me um, for selling a product. And I had this discussion with a different hedge, former hedge fund manager once where I said the exact thing you just said. I said, the problem I have is this. I'm trying to sell a research service where I know the three of us are really good. We're good at our respective skills. And as a team, we're fantastic. But I also know how difficult the end, the end product that when we put this out, it the, the stock may go a different direction and it's really hard to get excited and sell it the way I would sell a chair where I say, this is the best chair I've ever sat in. I know this chair is going to make your back feel better after you spend eight hours. In it. And, um, and so I found that very difficult when I made the transition to the newsletter, I first gave some thought to doing a Substack, and I gave, I talked to some people about it at length, including people in Substack. And there, the reality is you still have to do your own marketing. You still have to market yourself. You're going to have to start doing blogs and podcasts and all this kind of stuff. And when I made the decision to go with Empire, I thought, you know what? They have a marketing team. They have a very direct, a very specific type of audience they're going after. And I don't want to, again, at this stage of life, have to be the guy who's starting up from scratch. I've been there. I've done that. But the trade-off is... The marketing is very ambitious and newsletter marketing tends to be very ambitious. And it's not something, and as I've written in from the moment I joined this company, it's probably the least comfortable thing I do. However, it's the only way we're going to sell the product. Or as Enrique would often, he says, you know, you've got the pat, you've got the wrapper, and then you've got the product. And we care, you know, I care about the product. That's what I'm I'm working on, and that's what I'm spending my time on. But the wrapper has a lot of flash to it. And, um, and I prefer it be just, you know, like as a journalist, plain vanilla, don't promote. There's just one problem with that. Then no one will buy. Then what am I doing this for? So, you know, you have to know your end market. Um, you market differently to different end markets. Our end market is, uh, is, is, a, is, is more of a, you know, former small business person or a small business person or someone who's made a lot of money who's tends to be a little more conservative is, it likes a hands-on approach to some or all of their investing is a newsletter buyer because there's a market of many people out there who like newsletters. They just, that's how they invest partially, at least through investment newsletters. It's their hobby. And, um, and so that's the market that we serve. Uh, even though some of the ideas we have, I think are as good for any institutional person as they are for any retail person. Um, but it's just the marketing. So I have a problem with that, but this is the time I decided to do it on my own. And I, by the way, I think that's the challenge for any newsletter writer who decides to go say a journalist who decides to go to a Substack, or somebody else who decides to have a Substack. is marketing is being heard is being heard over the noise. You know, I wrote a piece the other day about the creator economy and are we starting to see, see cracks? Because the question is, who can listen to everything? You know, there are between spaces like we're on right now or a podcast or the number of newsletters out there. I mean, how I don't have the time and I'm 70 years old. If I don't have the time and I'm 70 years old, how does everybody else have the time? And my guess is 
They don't. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really important point. And it's, it's funny because, again, I see people that will critique me for constantly promoting, whether it's the lead lag report or talking about the funds or the music that I write or whatever. And it's very interesting. I have my app, Hyudish, and it, it's like, well, you live in a capitalist system. Again, I, I I don't understand. Selling is the number one thing you skill you need to have for any endeavor, right? whether you're an entrepreneur or entrepreneur or just trying to go around day to day and try to have any kind of progress. Um, right, an, so, entrepreneur, so, an entrepreneur, as I've been much of my career, as I was as a journalist when I was a columnist, and as I, I am now, because I believe my, that's it. The entrepreneur is a little easier because somebody else, there's a back office and somebody else is doing a big part of that. The minute you shift to doing it on your own, you're an entrepreneur. And the real question is, are you really an entrepreneur? And if you really have a business, as I had, you know, I joke to people, I say, you know, I'll never, you know, if I never see another QuickBooks, I'll be the happiest guy on earth because I hated doing QuickBooks. Um, a real entrepreneur would say, hey, I'm counting the money. I love my QuickBooks. And so, you know, for me, it was just, oh, I'd just rather be doing the work, meaning I'd rather be doing the research. I'd rather be doing the writing. That's what I really enjoy. But now, if you have a newsletter, you have to really start thinking about, you know, on your own, you have to start thinking about different ways to maneuver that. And, and whether you, and if you're a journalist, you tend not to be wired to be a promoter because it's contra to what a journalist is because journalists tend to go after promoters. And promotion can be defined in many different ways, including marketing. Um, and so that's why we come back to the concept if we, we feel strongly about the product and the performance of the product that's what's important to us. Yeah, no, 100%. Okay, so for the remaining 10 minutes, uh, Herbie, you kind of alluded to to ESG, and I've had a number of people talking about energy, uranium, nuclear in these spaces. Um, I had I had uh, Alex Epstein, uh, Epstein uh, on yesterday who has uh, the view that we should actually be doubling down on fossil fuels, that ESG is actually, you can argue, not humanitarian because you need cheap fossil fuels for anybody in emerging economies to have any kind of decent standard of living. Uh, I am curious your thoughts on uh, the ESG narrative, if you think it's it's all hype marketing, or if there's something really to it from a longer-term investment thesis perspective. I think there's a mix, but I think, I think Wall Street being Wall Street takes anything and takes it to the extreme. And you had this series of companies that went public and positioned themselves as ESG companies. And what is it? There's a public service company. I forget the the corporate title that some companies have um, have actually formed themselves under. Um, and what you've seen is you've seen companies basically form under this as a way to, or, or, be, or sort of label themselves as ESG specifically to, um, to get folded into an ESG fund or a fund that needs ESG-related investments. And one company I wrote about, which just drove me nuts when I really realized it was Warby Parker. Because Warby Parker, you know, positions itself as this great ESG company, yet they don't disclose same-store sales. They're not a very transparent company. And how can you be ESG if you're not transparent? Because to me, one goes hand-in-hand hand with the other. Or you had Allbirds, which came out and had whatever, you know, they tried to, cre- they tried to create some new term for their IPO. So you had all these people trying to rush in and cash in on it. And I did some work on this. I actually posted... A few things on in my uh, my daily column, my, my, my twice a week column, uh, the free one um, that really tried to drill into some of this and how there really were genuine companies that actually had repositioned themselves or reformulated themselves as whatever the structure is. And again, I, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the structure because I'm not 100 percent on ESG. 
But I think it's just like anything else. Uh, there's there's some good to it, but then it, there's this big gray area. And there was, you know, Carson Block had this guy on one of his podcasts who's a former ESG guy at Blackstone or Black BlackRock, one of the places. Um, and anyway, he was talking about how he was talking about the gray area. And that's the problem is there's no strong definition to any of this. So companies can come in and try to play with it as a way to sucker in investors. And I think that's the part that hasn't totally been sort of flushed out. And I think that until it is, you know, it's like, it's anybody's guess, you know, what is ESG? You know, how do you use it? But again, just mentioning it gets you bought by a fund and brought into some, you know, it it helps your stock or in theory it should until you start totally disappointing and they can't hold you anymore. Um, But that was my approach on it. I was just getting worked up about some of these companies that were, you could just see where it was a marketing tool, nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, which is unfortunate because when that happens, the 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 things which are real, which are beneficial about investing in the space, end up getting, I think, tagged by skeptics that say, "Well, I'm not going to do this because it's all nonsense." When there are some positives, but the marketing suddenly makes the investment dollars think that it's broadly negative. Yeah, uh, I don't disagree with that. You know, and by the way, in the case of, of Warby Parker, this is the issue where they say, you know, the amount they give away, they give away a free pair of glasses for every pair you. Um, you buy, but they don't disclose what the actual cost is of that. And if you actually go through and try to calculate it, you see it's not an enormous number. Um, so I would say, gee, if you're going to say you're giving away something, you're going to give you're giving away a pair of glasses for every um, pair that you sell, and you're a public company, and you're claiming, you know, to be ESG, and that's your pitch. You should you should disclose what the amount is. Why aren't they disclosing it? No one's yeah. talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, okay, so so last question on my end, Herb, and then we'll wrap this up. The um, every now and then I'll get uh, people sending me direct messages, and I'm not talking about those that I kind of joke about with the award-winning DM was for those that are listening in the space. But every now and then I'll get like a legit, you know, uh, somebody legitimately sending me a question saying, "Listen, you know, I'm I'm trying to break into the investment industry. Um, I find it really hard. What what suggestions? What advice do you have?" And arguably, Wall Street has changed a hell of a lot over the last several years, decades. Um, you've seen it all. You've done it all. Um, I'm just curious, for those that are looking to either make a move into the investment field, transition from operations to research or from research to portfolio management, what do you think is the most important skill somebody has to have nowadays? Because it's not as simple as graduate with a mm-hmm. finance degree and now you're going to be a, uh, an amazing financial advisor. I don't know. That's, 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 I'm almost the wrong person to ask that question to. Yeah, I, 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 I think, no, yeah, because I think, look, I think inquisitiveness will always get you somewhere. You need to be skeptical, though. I think a huge dose of skepticism will help you. On the other hand, over skepticism will get you nowhere. It's certainly in, mar- in a bull market, market like the one we're currently going into, we're currently in, maybe a different story. But, um, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, it's a good question. Uh, and I think it's, uh, I think you would get a lot of, I'm sure you've already received a ton of answers on it, but I can't, I can't answer that one. Yeah, no, I, I don't know myself. I mean, I think you're right. It's just, to me, it's always about stubbornness, right? It's, it's like, if you, if you want to achieve something, you've got to keep at it. If you can't get through the door, go through the window. If you can't go through the window, go through oh, the door. Oh yeah. Window. That's, yeah. that's always been my approach. And I think on wall street where people are, you know, some of the nastiest and nicest people, right? You get nicest people and you get some of the nastiest people. You have to be able to deal with the nasty people that are just going to tell you. 
you suck and that you don't know what you're doing. And yet, and that's the beauty of all this. And that's, that's maybe a great way to end this. And that is that, you know, in my career and everyone I've watched, there are always people who look at these, look at the authors, look at the actors, look at, look at anyone, pe- people in your profession. Everybody says you're going to be a failure and they end up being the biggest successes. So you're right. You know, when somebody, if you really want it badly enough, you try every which way and, and, and you'll get there. Personally, I don't know why anyone would want to work professionally on Wall Street because it sounds like, you know, it's, 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 it doesn't sound like uh, it's, it's a tough place to work. Uh, everyone's lured by the riches and a lot of people get rich, but I think they don't look at the roller coaster that's involved. And, you know, I often ask myself why some people are so nasty. And I think it's because when they're managing other people's money, it can play huge tricks with their, with their mind and with the brain. And it, and there, there are more fun ways to make a living in my, in my opinion. Yeah, no, and I'll add to that real quick to end this. I mean, it's what, what I think people don't really appreciate is it goes back to this point that you can identify and say, here are the benefits of this microwave or whatever it would be. But the, the the level of randomness and the lack of of a clear a link between uh, uh, your own activities, your own action, and the result is very uh, muddy when it comes to investing. Because you can be the hardest worker, smartest person in the world, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make more money. You know, from an investment thesis, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get more people paying attention. Uh, so that lack of control, that sort of correlation between effort and actual results. I think is is really weak, and I think most people get confused in thinking that uh, you need to uh, be the best in terms of always being right, as opposed to the one that simply stays in the game long enough. You place your bets, you get on the roller coaster car. It's the only one problem: you don't know when this thing's going to end. You have no control over it once it leaves the station. Right, and that to right. me was always the frustration of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And those are, the, uh, in some ways, the excitement of it. So that's uh, that's a good way to close off. So those everybody that's joined. I certainly appreciate everybody that's been here. You'll see in the pinned tweet, I'm now putting these uh, Spaces Conversations as edited podcasts on my YouTube channel. Please make sure you check that out. Subscribe there. I am going to be doing another Spaces Conversation. Uh, Herb, first time you and I have, uh, I think, ever spoken, uh, but I certainly appreciate the hour uh, with us and everybody please make sure you follow herb and enjoy the rest of your day thank you take care thank you bye take care thank you bye take care thank you the content in this program is for informational purposes only you should not construe any information or other material as investment financial tax or other advice the views expressed by the participants are solely their own A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.